Section 15 of the Centaurians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Centaurians by Biagi. Chapter 12, Part 2. I remained intending to examine this peculiar temple of a fiery religion, but the lid slid suddenly over the opening above, and hastily I groped my way to the door, thankful there were no seats to stumble over. Out in the hot sunshine, again, I mingled with the crowd that hurried in various directions and wandered about the city for hours. The architecture of public buildings was varied, unique, superb, and in complete contrast to the monotonous sameness of private dwellings. Skilled architects had planned that no two government buildings should in any way be similar. Near the palace was the courthouse, a low, square, rugged stone building of primitive hideousness, centuries, centuries old. Prisons there were none. This half of the globe was free of criminals. It was explained to me that all causes fostering crime belong to the Middle Ages. A philosopher had then predicted that civilization would be complete when passionate humanity became extinct. Ahem. The centurions had mastered civilization in the production of a perfect race. They could not love or hate. Adultery, murder, envy, jealousy were the unknown evils of savagery. Exterminating the germ, love, root of disaster, all other passions were conquered by themselves. Marriage was committed simply for the perpetuity of the race. I envied these people, their lofty pure minds, and rare physical perfection. Like blessed celestial childhood, they seemed free of care. Death brought momentary sadness, regret. These philosophers declared dissolution, the highest degree of nature which they worshipped in the form of the sun. The political situation of the country I did not attempt to analyze, but the great organizations of political intrigue, shareholders in the monstrous outrageous speculation of principle and the turbulent contagious plague of election were labelled among the rare curios of the dark ages the centurions in their far-reaching penetrating intelligence and advanced simplicity vested full power in one man the great man of wisdom centauri was the head of the nation personifying the government and enlightened beyond duplicity believed firmly in himself as did the people Fortunates, rising above tortures, mental doubts, are the dominants of civilization. From time immemorial, each great man, upon assuming office, was supposed to form a new government, but the majority abided by the laws of their predecessors. Cherry of questioning the sublime, shackless justice, reigning centuries of calm. Centauri, however, brought about many radical changes. His strenuousness ended the quietude of centuries, destroyed the ancient laws of his ancestors, and created new ones. The people welcomed the new regime. Progression, they cried, but ignored entirely that which was next to Centauri's heart. Progression by degrees is more thorough, the people pleaded and vetoed the order to abolish all sun temples and erect new houses of worship to him who is supreme. Centauri wished to found a new sect, and when learning of the veto, sorrowfully remarked, I have ignored the gradual, yet will live to realize the suggestion as fact. He sacrificed his wish to the people, he set a new value upon trade, which in this ideal world defined the full significance of the world, merchandise for merchandise, limiting the circulation of currency to such an extent 
that in the present era of plenty money was superfluous and exchanged merely for form in trifling transactions many schools libraries were stationed throughout the city handsome buildings luxuriously equipped private institutions had long been abolished young ladies seminaries and muscle-developing colleges where fancy sums are expended for a veneer which renders the subjects pitifully unfit lacking even the ability to assist themselves in necessity mere useless toys of frivolity issued yearly from stilted preparatories unseasoned veal garnished with underdone dumplings a saute to the dismay of our ancestors is called the rising generation where forgotten nuisances in this marvellously enlightened world greed cupidity were traits of medieval times merit rose superior to capricious influence students were ambitious sincere in their efforts and sought elevation till they passed away to new spheres centaur had many magnificent theatres all with a remarkable roof contrivance at a moment's notice the whole top of the building could be removed sliding upon hinges and resting at the side of the house upon props like a huge box cover the opera house was by far the handsomest building of its kind in the city the interior was indescribably beautiful lavish rich wantonly luxurious with a seating capacity for twenty thousand the centurions had still to conquer their passion for music but comedy was the chief amusement caged in a bijou of art splendid with elaborate decorations of foolish clowns mirth-inspiring masks and rare exquisite etchings of fair folly in various beckoning attitudes these wise children with their wonderful clarity of thought had long digested the happiness of laughter but realized the absolute necessity of variation gloom spiced delight ennui was strictly a product of my own country tragedy was a classic a profound culture and was lodged in a sombre stately building bearing the nearest approach to a prison i had yet encountered a handsome monument to melancholia rich in antiquity there were whole scenes of famous tragedies produced in wonderful paintings startlingly vivid with the misery of reality shadowed in a background of heavy costly dull-hued fabrics i grew wretched with homesickness in the dolorous aura dense with a miasma of rank perfumes the theatre reminded me of those of my own world during the sad daytime illy ventilated morose half-light and the usual freezing shower to the imagination which impels you to seek fresh air with alacrity tragedy was unpopular with the centurions thespians were forced to work before the uninspiring view of rows of empty seats their efforts critically watched by scant audiences unresponsive stony occasionally applauding invariably at the wrong time and the actors adepts in the art of mechanism waded through their parts with not the slightest conception or sympathy marionettes the culture of progression reduced tragedy to the greatest of farces and fatalities were shelved by the generation of the wonderful present the knowledge of the diseased art relic of the dark ages was culled from the histories of the ancients fascinated i tramped throughout this marvellous city congratulating myself that i was without a guide the lost strange feeling was delightful i had not the remotest idea where i was going but noticed the avenues grew broader dwellings further apart and gardens larger more gorgeous finally terminating the city's wall a shallow forest of magnificent trees circling centaur like a great feathery belt 
Beyond stretched a broad vista of lovely verdant country, but the blue line of distance seemed strangely cut and uneven, a shadowy obstruction reared to a tremendous height extending over the land for miles. Curious, I wandered to the edge of the forest wall, resting a few minutes, undecided whether to advance or turn back. Then I struck out direct over the soft green fields, avoiding the road, which is always the longest route. Why? The heat was intense, the journey long, tedious, but in the glorious end, fatigue was forgotten. I finally reached a high, massive iron trellis wall, through which I peered at a scene. Ah, entrancing, Eden-like, veiled with the enchantment of mystery, I found the ponderous gates invitingly wide and dared to enter this strangely still sphere of illusion, dense with overpowering exotic odors of millions of brilliant-hued blossoms. I gorged my side with a rainbow-tinted vision, then waded neck-deep in the wild, flowery maze, wondering for all the heavy-scented fascination just why this paradise had been created. Gradually, my senses pierced the charm, and I discovered the bewildering-hued floral abundance was massed cleverly together, forming clusters of stars, circles, and crescents. Separated by broad stone paths, all leading to a gigantic structure rearing higher than any building in Centaur. A grim abode, marring, darkening the brilliant surroundings, I ventured near this huge, strange building, high, broad, square of somber granite, the massive bronze portals stood wide. A chill quietness pervaded all things, a sudden unaccountable feeling of abhorrence came over me. My swift glance travelled throughout the immense vestibule, tiled with black marble, and wainscoted to the ceiling, with iron. The walls were ornamented with countless little brass knobs. A sepulchre, I gasped. A monstrous tomb! And turning quickly, fell heavily against a man who evidently had been following me. You wish to enter? he asked, ignoring my awkwardness. In confusion, I mumbled an apology. The moment I spoke, he saluted deeply. "'One of the four strangers from the other side,' he murmured, and, without further ceremony, led the way. I followed, plying him with questions, all of which he cautiously answered. He informed me the circular spots that so attracted me were the knobs of little doors leading to diminutive, yet far-stretching lanes containing the ashes of the departed, he twisted a great knob near the floor, instantly twenty or thirty little doors flew open, and I peered curiously into the little dark alleys, some extending clear around the building, and all containing ashes of those who had departed centuries ago. The fundamental law and perfecting touch of nature is extinction, the gentleman informed me. At the expiration of a race, he continued, the ashes of the entire line are removed from these cells and consigned to the underground vaults which form the foundation of this building. Throughout the gardens are many stairways leading to the vaults. Ventilation is perfect. Would you care to visit the underground? I replied hastily in the negative. He told me the building had been erected five thousand years and was still incomplete. It comprised twenty-five floors, with the plans opened to add twenty-five more, but he was positive the additional twenty-five floors would never be built, basing his conviction upon the supreme law of degeneration, extinction. He declared the building would never be completed, that it would take thousands of years, and the inevitable is never idle. 
Has it always been cremation? Was there never a time of burials? I asked. Burials? He cried. You mean the body in the natural state planted in the ground? I nodded. Preposterous, he gasped. Is there such a custom? Not even the savages commit such sacrilege. Cremation, he continued, is a form of our religion, though for a century burials were resorted to. Eight hundred years ago, a noted herbalist of that period extracted from minerals an acid which, when applied to the lifeless body, produced instant petrification. But, unfortunately, the demise of this wise man closed forever the petrified age. We returned to cremation. He drew from their cells exquisite odd-shaped urns. Some were of bronze, many of iron, a few of gold. The silver ones were tarnished and ugly, and plain stone jars seemed to be the most in use. He drew out boxes of rare-scented wood, beautifully inlaid with metals, and from one of the lower shelves brought out a narrow, oblong, silvery block, explaining the style had been in use many centuries and proved the most durable. Eagerly I examined the curio. It was a crystal block, quaintly etched with queer characters, the ashes within giving the silver sheen. I quickly returned it to its cell, then, stooping, twisted the great knob near the floor, which caused all the little doors to spring together with a snap. The guide smiled knowingly and, taking my arm, escorted me down the long, somber hall, advising me to inspect the tomb of the great family. We halted in front of a small door, which flew open at the touch, revealing a small, square platform that shot up like a rocket as we stepped upon it. The speed slackened gradually to a standstill before wonderful gates of smooth, dull gold, which slowly opened. I entered a lofty arched room, flooded with sunlight blazing upon gold-panelled walls, and sank ankle-deep in golden floors, which deadened sound. I gazed upon fabulous magnificence. There were wonderful embroideries, studded with gems, flashing golden suns, silver gauze, Hang high, shimmering with sparkling sprays, soft as moonlight, strange urns, jars and bowls embedded with gems, delicate jeweled caskets of ivory and jade, tall crystal cylinders divided into compartments, all containing a silvery dust, massive bronze columns carved and engraved with strange forms and inscriptions relative to the history of those whose ashes powdered its heart. Gold and silver globes and queer diamond-shaped receptacles were lined in order upon bronze trestles, all contained the sanctified ashes of rulers long departed, and high above all this splendor hung the golden banner and imperial arms of Centauri. My eye suddenly fastened upon a hideous stone figure, the trunk of a woman resting upon a gem-encrusted pedestal. That is the form of the beauteous Alpha Centauri, who reigned during the petrified age, the guide informed me. It is very pathetic and marks petrification of failure. The lower portion of the body has crumbled away. The pedestal contains the powder. Before long, what remains will be dust, then the pedestal will be sealed. Why so much splendor for the great family if all centurions are equal? I asked. All centurions are equal, he answered, but the great family is divine, immortal. Truly is the great family wise, I muttered, then suddenly, sickened, repelted the bestial richness, 
I turned toward the golden gates, but hesitated, not caring to descend by the treacherous elevator. The guide, understanding my nervousness, led me through a rear door and out to a long, barren, drafty hall. The floor, a recent addition, was still incomplete, but the ashes of the great family always occupied the new portion of the building. We reached a narrow winding stairway, and the friendly guide cautioned and advised slow travel. I began the steep descent, but frequently rested, owing to an odd trembling, and from that day forever I abhorred the odor of musk and wondered if I had inhaled any of the perfumed powder of the great family. Reaching the gloomy, black-tiled hall, I rushed like one possessed out into the fresh air, but the beauties of the garden had vanished, and I raced along the wide paths and was soon streaking it across the green country, nor did I slacken up till reaching once more the swaying circular forest. I followed the edge of the curving grove, hoping it would lead to the heart of the city, but instead the trees thinned to the harbour. The long slanting rays of the sun glistened upon wide piers and bridges which jutted far out into the bay. Gateways were elaborate columned arches, and the fantastic domed and spiral turreted roofs of dock buildings gave centaur the appearance of a great mystical palace floating upon the sea. If only the much-respected municipalities of our various cities could have accompanied me upon that tour of inspection. Heavy freight was still transported by water and rail. I watched strong brawny men load and unload queer barge-like ships. The wages of labor was paid in bolts of goods, provisions, and books. Knowledge was prized higher than gold or silver. All work was done for the government. There was but one government, one nationality, one language, and competition, monopolies, labor organizations were unknown evils. There were no classes, all men were equal, but a thin dividing line was stretched by knowledge. The more learned, the more power. Supreme satisfaction resulted in this superior civilization. I wandered some time around the business portion of the city, vainly trying to find my way back to the palace. I would not ask directions, as I passed all right for a centurion, till I opened my mouth. Then I was gaped at as one of the four, and so on. This had begun to pall. There seemed to be a great many buildings going up in the business district, or it was just possible that my wanderings invariably winded up in front of the same building. At all events, my lounging finally attracted the attention of the workmen, and the foreman ventured up and inquired my business. The moment I spoke, it was all up, one of the four. The man saluted deeply and courteously offered to take me over the building. The word flew along the line, and I was regarded with interest, and caps were doffed if by chance I happened to meet the eye of any of the men. Information concerning the building was willingly given, and I solved the mysterious appearance of all the houses in Centaur. They were made of glass. Great blocks of glass hoisted one upon the other, forced and screwed together, and joined with liquid crystal. Walls measured from five to seven feet thick. Apartments were large, airy, the halls wide, lofty, with domed ceilings supported by huge crystal columns. In the center of the dome, an electric chandelier swung, which flamed blue the moment the sun set and remained burning till sunrise. 
Dwellings were constructed to accommodate four and five families. The durability of glass is above argument. Most of the buildings in Centaur had been standing for centuries, and the Palace of Centauri was believed to be the first crystal building erected. Some of the houses had a coating of paint, pale blue, pink, whatever the fancy, creating a porcelain effect which I thought vastly pretty. But the popular tint seemed to be the natural tinge of the glass, a dark sea-green, very cooling to the sight and nerves. All buildings were hosed every morning, which accounted for their irradiating hues when the sun shone upon them, but at night they presented an extraordinary appearance. The lights within penetrated the glass, which absorbed the rays and cast a dull, roseate splendor. One could walk down rows of glowing houses and yet be in total darkness, but the streets were flooded with brilliancy from great arc lights suspended high above the crossings. Vacant lots enclosed with unsightly board fences were not permitted to mar the symmetry of this lovely city. Such land was converted into public parks and kept by the city till the owner, ready to build, notified the authorities. Then, after the time limit, the wall which surrounds all private property was erected. It was very interesting watching the carpenters at their strange house building. The preciseness, ease, rapidity and methodical attention given to details produced faultless work. Such conscientiousness was astounding. I remained till the closing hour, then, following the directions of the foreman, soon found my way to the palace. The setting sun painted the horizon line a fierce crimson, and seemed to sink into the beautiful bay surrounding this most wonderful city. As the fiery glow faded to a dying pink, the lights of the city suddenly flared with electric splendor, and calm, reposeful twilight was unknown in this strange land, and night, moist, restful, shaded only the mountains and wilderness. End of section 15